Hi, everyone. I'm Celia Keenan-Bolger, and this is Sunday Pancakes, a podcast to nourish your head and heart any day of the week. So in between my sophomore and junior year of college, there was this musical theater album featuring the songs of the composer Stephen Schwartz. And the first song on that album was Beautiful City from Godspell. And that summer, I listened to that song more times than I am proud to admit, mostly because I was obsessed with the performer who sang it. And then I found out that this performer was younger than me and had already made her Broadway debut. And my feelings shifted from like a sort of obsession to a sort of obsessed jealousy. And I kept asking myself, like, how is she this talented and beautiful? And then a bunch of years later, we were cast in a concert version of the musical The Secret Garden and started a friendship not too long after that. But I feel like it was really in our 30s that we became close. She is one of my most deeply thoughtful friends. She is also hilarious in all kinds of surprising ways. She is self-reflective and someone that I go to when I'm looking for new ways to manage stress or pain. She has given her energy to so many different causes that she cares about, including conceiving a bilingual children's album called Singing New Home, where all of the proceeds go to help families separated at the border. And in the past year, I have watched her step into a kind of power, not only as an interpreter, but also as a creator. She has had some amazing output this past year that I am very eager to talk about. I'm so happy to welcome my friend, Laura Benanti, to the podcast. (laughs) Hi, Laura. Hi. I'm just fully sobbing from that (laughs) intro. I had no, I didn't know that. I know. I think that's probably something I didn't share early on in our friendship <laughs> to be like, you know, I was obsessed with you in college, right? I had no idea about that. I mean, I think it actually is funny to think about now because at the time it seemed like you were so much younger than me and had accomplished so much more. And now I'm like, we're not that different in age. No. But that feeling, I mean, I think this is something that we all experience, which is like this younger person is doing so much more than I am. Like, what does that say about where I am in my life and trying to just like be like, that's okay for them. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And instead of going down some kind of shame spiral for yourself. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that though, because it really mirrors my experience of my first few, 10 years really in the city. Um, in New York, because I started at 18 and I knew no one my own age, except for my friend, Michael Benjamin Washington, who I had met at NYU. He was my only friend. And then when everyone was graduating college, all of you had your own friend groups Mm. and I, and I didn't have any friends. I had Michael Benjamin Washington and Julia Murney. Julia was like, come here, little person. And like, (laughs) became my friend. But it wasn't until really my 30s that I felt like, oh, I have friends now. Because I think people who were in college, to your point, were like, why her? (laughs) You know what I mean? Which I get. I mean, not even why her, but I think we were all just like, oh, she's way beyond 
us, which of course you're like, we're all just 18 years old. That's we're all just doing our best. I think, you know, it's easy, especially when you're young, to be looking around constantly and feel like, who is ascending? Where am I in this ascension? What does that mean about me? And I think, talk about were you lonely or were you like, oh. I'm a professional lady, so it, I'm like getting all my jobs? I was deeply lonely. I was so incredibly lonely, which is why I just had so many boyfriends. <laughs> I just had boyfriend after boyfriend and then husband after husband because I was like, I need, I need people. And yeah. these are the people who are interested in me. And, and did you feel like the shows that you were doing were giving you community or did you also feel like you were this young person, like you, there were no peers? I didn't have peers. I had, you know, when I was in The Sound of Music at 18, I was closer in age to the children than anyone, <sighs> but I was playing their mom or their nanny or whatever. And then when I did Swing at 19, there was nobody even close to my age and except for like the guys on the crew, you know? <laughs> Um, and then what was that? And then into the woods, Kate Rinders was my friend. Um, but she had sort of best friends already, um, from college. And then I like behaved badly toward her. Um, because You're I, like, I don't have a lot of friends. I don't really know. How I don't know what works. to do. Yeah. I don't know how this works. And all I know is that when boys like me, that's what matters. Mm. You know, that's when boys like me, then I have to go there because I didn't feel like I had any agency other than to like be an object kind of. Uh Um, And then when I did nine, I felt a real sense of community there with like Cheetah Rivera, (laughs) but like, you know, Cheetah and Mary Stewart, I became really close to her and Tree Sarve, who was my dresser. She Mm. became one of my closest friends and, you know, still is, but I didn't, at that point, it's like I was 23 and that's when everybody was sort of graduating college. And I was like, at this point had created this pattern of, of, you know, romantic relationships and not really knowing how to have lady friendships and feeling a little like self-protective mm-hmm. of like, I don't know how to do this. When you I'm just, this is just striking me now, but like when you reflect on that first job as Maria, and I feel like every, you, your, your parents did everything right. You were just like, I'm, I want to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And to start your career as someone so young, Mm -hmm. playing a part opposite a very grown man. Richard Chamberlain. He was 18,000 years old. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. Yeah. Do you think, what do you, like when you think about that now, do you think that was just what it was and it was a good start for things? Or are you, what do you feel about that now? I have a lot of um, conflicted feelings about it. On one hand, I was so, my parents would not allow me to be a child actor. So it's (laughs) not like I was doing professional theater. Like the job that I had before starring on Broadway was shoveling manure into bags at my local farmer's market. Legitimately. Why do you want to leave that? I mean, I went to shovel a different pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, right. But I I had been so driven because I felt so other my whole life. Mm-hmm. I felt so um, 
like not cool. And I liked this thing that was very specific. This, I loved musical theater and one other person in my entire town loved musical theater. Um, and that's it. Right. And so, and I feel like it was fraught too, because my dad was an actor mm-hmm. and he lived in New York. And so that felt like I could be closer to him somehow if I was closer to this thing. Mm. So I think it was not as simple as it felt at the time. Mm. At the time it felt like, but I just want to be on Broadway and I want to do this thing and it's what I'm meant to do. And, and then I was suddenly doing it. Uh-huh. Um, and it, at the time it felt exciting and simple and like magical. And looking back, I realized sort of the layers of psychodrama attached to it mm-hmm. and realized that at 18, I don't think I was fully prepared for the life that it was setting me off in. I don't think I was ready to set sail on that sea yet. And I think just being asked to behave like a grown up, Mm -hmm. also because you were very much, I mean, I think you have always just been mature beyond your years, but Mm -hmm. being mature and having enough like years on the planet to act like a grown up are very different things. Mm -hmm. And holding, I mean, did you feel like there was this inner struggle in you that was like, I just want everybody to think I'm a grown up or, and I want everybody to treat me like the actual age I am, or were you like, I want to be treated like a grown up? I think because I had always looked older. So when I was 11, I was five, four and had like big old mom boobs and looked like a grown woman. When I was 11, people thought I was 18. Mm. So I was like, sexualized at a young age by grown Mm -hmm. men who didn't know how old I was or did and didn't care. Um, and so I think for me, I always have this conflict of when I act my age, people look at me like I'm doing something wrong. Um, meanwhile, like my friends who were small and looked 11 could do a cartwheel and scream and yell and nobody cared. But if I did it, I looked like I was losing my mind. Mm. Um, so I think there was a part of me that just adapted to having to behave like I was older. Of course. Not because I wanted to, but because it was survival. I mean, I feel like you've talked a lot. You've been so um, like real about how other you felt growing up. Was there a point where you were like, I I think I'm beautiful or I'm getting attention for being beautiful? Did you, you never had that? I knew I was getting attention, but I, I never felt beautiful. Mm-hmm. I have never looked in the mirror and thought you're beautiful ever one time. And I think for me, because I developed early, I just thought, well, men like boobs mm-hmm. and I have big boobs. It doesn't mean I'm beautiful. It just means I have these two like sacks of fat that they like. <laughs> It's so funny to hear you say this because I feel like I I was such a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. I remember going on like the eighth grade trip with um, 
with my class to Washington, D.C. and pretending I had my period because I felt so self-conscious that everybody else was just like lapping me in their maturity. And I think it's much harder to to develop earlier. But I do think like that time as a woman, as a young girl, where you're so aware of the people especially the other girls or women around you and how Mm -hmm. fast everybody is maturing and where you sort of measure up in all Mm -hmm. of that. And it's like, there's no sweet spot. And I wouldn't say that it's harder, you know, to, to, you know, it's interesting. I feel like we do that a lot where we minimize our own experience to say like, you had it harder than me, Mm -hmm. or I'm not saying that, that mine is the same as yours when really experiences and pain are all relative, you know? So like my sister was a late bloomer and and looked really young to the point where she was working in a high school and w- the principal was like, get on the bus. And she was like, I work here. <laughs> this is my job, ma'am. Yeah. So, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that, for feeling like, don't infantilize me. Don't treat me like a baby. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think one is necessarily harder than the other. Um, they're just different. Do you feel like, I feel like you have such an authentic uh, self on social media. And I feel like a lot of what you are doing on social media is is directly aimed at girls the age that we are talking about. That's mm-hmm. like a lot about not just your own experience of being like a grown-up mother, but also saying like there is not one way that one has to be. Mm-hmm. Do you, how, what is your relationship with social media like these days or how has it been this past year? Frankly, if it were not for my job, I don't know if I would do it at all. Mm. I think, I, I, I think the toxicity overrides, um, a lot of the good. Um, I think for a person like myself who self-evaluates and compares, in the way that I do, it can be extremely unhealthy. Um, I also think that the sort of collective decision to highlight our, our um, like best, most wonderful moments is a really dangerous one. I don't want young women growing up with the anxiety of these filters and, you know, literal and figurative, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just the idea that like, they're not enough somehow. Um, So I feel like, you know, I don't have like a huge following, but the, but the following I do have, I want it to be of service in some way. I want it to be of of service to social justice, to families separated at the border for young women struggling with their identity for, you know, the LGBTQ community, like however I can be helpful is what I want to do. And like pictures of my kid. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like there are ways that it does bring you joy or are they so like if, when it is good, what does it do? It makes me feel, it helps me keep in touch with people who I miss, Mm -hmm. but there's a danger in that too, because then I feel like, oh, I've connected with Celia. No, I haven't. I've just looked at a picture you put on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I haven't texted you to say, how are you? You know, um, I read a book called digital minimalism. It's really excellent. My friend Lawrence Sprague um, recommended it to me and I did the like digital detox and I was very happy. 
I was much happier when I was doing that. Um, but, but also it's how you use it. Like this speaks more to me than the platform, like speaks more about who I am, I think, mm-hmm. than the nature of the platform. Like I am a person who will compare myself. I am a person who will do those things. I, not everybody does that. Um, and I mean, most people do that, but maybe not know. to the degree. Yeah. Maybe not to the degree, but I've set a timer for myself. I have give myself mm-hmm. 20 minutes a day. And so instead of scrolling, I like search specific people. You are one of them. And to be like, what are you doing? And I love you heart. And then I really, really do my best to not search the the accounts that actively harm me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't always succeed in that. Sometimes I'm like, how can I hurt myself today? You know, are those accounts generally centered around um, mothers that are thriving? Yes. It is generally centered around like performative motherhood. Uh-huh. Um, and I check in just to make sure I'm still not doing it right. Do you feel like you are, are different in motherhood than you thought you were going to be? Oh my God. Yes. Motherhood like cracked me open in a way that has been both beautiful and horrifying. I feel like being the mother of a daughter for me is very triggering for events in my life. And um, also incredibly beautiful in that I see like the innocence of childhood. Um, But also painful and that I never quite feel like I'm doing that right in part because my child for all of her wit and frankly brilliance like she's a brilliant person um to the point where sometimes she asks me questions and I'm like ask your dad (laughs) I don't know um but she has some atypical um like neurological responses to things mm-hmm. that manifest themselves in tantrums that last for hours and can be violent. Um, and that's really hard. And I, I just didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that there could be a possibility that I am unable to soothe my child or that it would take two and a half hours to soothe my child. And that soothing would look like getting kicked in the face and having to wrap her in a blanket in a very specific way, in a very specific corner of a very specific room. Um, And that it would take hours to learn that. And then that would change. The corner would change and the blanket would change and the way that I would have to do it would change. And that what soothed her yesterday wouldn't soothe her today. And I know that, that every mother experiences that on some level, but this isn't like a very extreme version of it. And I just could not have anticipated it. I didn't know it existed. I think I sort of similarly was like, I'm going to be great at this. Like I've been like my whole life has been like leading up to this. I'm, this is going to be a no brainer. Mm-hmm. And then as like in that first year, as I watched again with the comparing and despairing, mm-hmm. I watched all of these women around me. It was like their life 
came into a kind of focus and I felt like mine had been blown apart and was not able, I could not put it back together the way that it had been. It required like a different puzzle. Like I had to put that together in a whole new way. And I think just the sadness of my expectations of who I was, how I was going to show up and who I was going to be was Mm. so painful that I was like, I thought I was going to love this all the time. I thought I was going to be amazing at it all the time. And I was like, Mm -hmm. guys, I don't feel that way about either of those things. I'm not that good Mm -hmm. at it. And there are a lot of times that it is unbelievably hard. Mm -hmm. And the loneliness inside of that. Mm -hmm. But I am not exaggerating, Celia, when I say that your open experience with that saved my life. And I'm not exaggerating because my postpartum depression and anxiety after I had my daughter and I could not soothe her was so severe that my husband was like, we have to go to a hospital. Like you, this is not, you're not okay. And had you not spoken about your experience, I think the shame I would have felt, and believe me, I still felt shame, but to, to say to myself, a person I love and admire and who I think is a really excellent mom, who I've watched be a really excellent mom for a year to hear you talk about your own experience made me feel so much less alone. And it's one of the reasons why that's how I pay it forward on my social media. For all of the things of social media that are are complicated, I do think like, and I think on social media, vulnerability is such a, it's like a tricky line between like wanting pain validated and actually yeah. being vulnerable. But mm-hmm. I do think it is a space where you can see when people are are really showing up as themselves in these moments when we're feeling like <laughs> I'm just this island out here with nobody who is having an experience even close to mine that when you give voice to it, whether it's on a big platform or whether it's in a tiny group of friends, like it Mm -hmm. can really profoundly affect people. It's like one of your superpowers that I feel like you are so sensitive, which means that you are extremely aware of the world around you. You are tuned in with, I would say, the least happy person in the room. Like you see them immediately. Mm -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm. it also is a, it's a big liability to feel things Mm -hmm. the way that you feel them. Have you, how do you deal with that? I used to drink a lot. (laughs) Honestly, you know, I was like, how can I put some skin on these, like this flesh that I walk around Mm. in? Because you're right. I would try and find the the person with the most pain in the room and then like bring them in, get in here. I'm going to, I'm going to make you feel better. Um, and that's not possible. You can't do that actually. Um, so, you know, I think it was around, it was around into the woods that I started really drinking a lot. I started really drinking and like smoking a lot of pot to try and just feel different mm-hmm. and to be cool. Frankly, you know, I had been such a weirdo all growing up and then through sound of music and swing, like I never had one single drink. I just, you know, and I was, I felt like a live wire all the time and 
all of a sudden <clears throat> and into the woods, I had like some friends, my own age and alcohol. And I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> I don't feel anything except happy. Mm-hmm. This, this has been the solution the whole time. This has been the missing piece. Um, and then I battled with it on and off for 20 years, 23 years. Um, and again, now in the absence of alcohol, I am raw again, you know, but now I'm at 41 and as a mom and with all that life experience, I feel I'm trying to look at it as a gift, like the way psychics have a gift. Yeah, Talk more about that. Like talk about the ways that it is a gift. I think, A, it's really great for our job. And also I do think it has given me like a radical empathy where I am able to look at a human, even if they are being a fucking monster Mm -hmm. and be like, are you okay? You know, what I have had to learn and what I have to continue to learn is boundaries mm-hmm. because I will be like, bring it in everyone in pain, get in here. Let me carry that for you. And then I'm like, why did I break my back? Why is my back broken? Why is it so heavy? Um, so that's the thing I'm learning. What and, does and that my- look like to try to have boundaries? Mm-hmm. For me, it's A, not allowing myself to go into the what ifs of that person, Mm. you know, and to take people at face value because Mary Beth Peel told me this when we did nine together. She was like, ma'am, people tell you exactly who they are. You see it. You have a very good sense of people and you just barrel right through and you have to stop. You have to listen to yourself. Not everyone deserves the benefit of the doubt. Not everyone deserves the same level of attention and you are going to burn out. And I was like, nope, not possible. Cut to 20 years later. And I'm like, oh yes, you are right. And so for me, it really is about designating time. Like my, my husband and my daughter deserve the most time. If I'm exhausting myself with strangers on the internet Mm -hmm. to try and soothe them, I don't have enough time for my husband and my daughter and my husband and I have had some really painful conversations around that where he's like, sweetheart, I love your heart. I love what you're trying to do. I see that you're trying to help everybody, but I miss you. And when you have to be in bed by 8 30 PM, because you are so tired from the day, who is that serving ultimately? And so I'm really like, I've been doing a lot of work on that on trying to, and trying to be clear about it, to be like, I see you, I appreciate you, and I don't have the bandwidth, and I'm sorry. I think it also requires a lot of um, self-worth, because when you are giving of yourself to people in pain, they are not in a position to give anything back. Mm -hmm. And so you are It's only output. And then I think there has to come a time when we say, it sounds so selfish, but it's like, what is in this for me? What am I getting out of this? And if it's, if it's only output, 
it's you have your life is too big to just be an output machine and that you have to we have to we all have to invest in the relationships where we give a lot and we get a lot i feel like this weirdly connects with what i want to talk about next which is i feel like in the past year i've watched you step into something that is like next level as far as your power and being in charge and and really being a creator instead of being the person that's like you know i'll do this show or i'll you know that that you're no longer just an interpreter and i'm just curious how when you were able to say to yourself like was it a long time ago that you were like i could do this but it's not my place or were you just like how did you how what was the trajectory of that in your own brain i mean as a child i was like a director <laughs> you know as a child i was like this is what we're going to do you do this you do and and it was and i felt like it was amazing and i loved it and it felt really natural and then all of a sudden i learned like oh that's bossy i'm being bossy mm. and i want people to like me so i stopped actually that's not true i didn't really stop until i got, like was 18 and i was on broadway mm. and then i was like i will do anything you want i'm a good girl um like but all through high school i was like president of my class and like starring in the shows and like threatening the football players and blackmailing them so that they would be in the ensemble. So we would have boys, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that mm-hmm. where I was like, I know who you went in the closet with. <laughs> you want to be in hello, Dolly. <laughs> totally. Right around the time of my second divorce, um, my friend Ashley Van Buren was like, do you want to do some like funny videos with me for theater mania? And I was like, no. <laughs> And she was like, come on. Cause I was so depressed. She was like, you need to like, I'm going to make it super easy for you. It'll be all improv and I'll bring all the props and let's do it. And I was like, "Ugh, fine. And it was so fun and so joyful that I started, we started doing more and more of that, like creating these little videos. And then I started like writing or co-writing and hosting the drama desk. Mm-hmm. You know, I would write my monologue and like a lot of the bits. Um, and so I started like hosting and writing. Um, and that felt really great. And even it sounds so silly, but even like the jokes on Twitter that I would write, like they were conceived of it, like in my brain and I knew what I was doing. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. this is, I'm writing a joke. So, so it kind of started with that, like the grain of that. And then you know, trying to produce, like producing with um, Mary Mitchell Campbell and Lynn Pinto, the the Singing You Home mm-hmm. album, um, like starting to produce things like that and be of service at the same time. And then really this year, the Sunshine Songs thing sort of happened out of a moment of empathy, mm. really. I didn't anticipate that it would become what it did. You know, I thought I thought of these young people. I thought of how much my school musical meant to me, how much it might mean to them, how those kids typically feel other, how this generation of kids self-identifies as anxious more than any previous generation. And as a person who deals with my own anxiety, I, I just didn't want them to feel like a ghost. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them to feel like they had disappeared. I did not think that it would be like 15,000 videos later. I thought I'd get like 20 videos. 
And then really, you know, World of Wonder, the production company who does RuPaul's Drag Race, they reached out to me to say, do you want to do something with this? And again, I was like, no, because <laughs> I was like a little scared and also didn't want the heart to go away. But because they have so much heart as well, we were able to turn it into homeschool musical class of 2020 on HBO Max, which I'm so proud of these kids. I want them to be seen. I want them to know that I see them, not the surface version of them that they're presenting to the world, but them. And have you had to use new muscles? Like how I feel like being a boss lady, as it were, tell me about that. I don't think there has ever been a time in my life where I have said to someone, you are not allowed to speak to me that way. And I have had to do that. Uh, Stepping into this new position Mm -hmm. as someone who's creating and executive producing something, someone who is the boss to say, you don't get to talk to me that way. You don't get to treat me that way. Um, I require more from you. You're not doing your job well. And, or you're not doing your job in a way that is meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. And this is how I would like to organize this. All of that scares the absolute shit out of me. (laughs) And I had to do it. Just basically taking ownership and agency to say to myself, you are not a child. You are not 18. You are a 41 year old woman and a mother. And these are your projects and you have a right to ask for them the way you want them. And if someone thinks you're a bitch, so be it. Mm-hmm. Because no one is calling a man a, an asshole for, for asking for what he needs. They call him direct. They say he's a good leader, whatever it is. And we have come so far as women, but there, that still exists. I frankly think the more we lean toward a matriarchal way of doing things, the more we bring that to our side, the better things are going to be. I don't think women should have to act like men in order to get what we need. In this moment, what do you feel like you can look back on this year and sort of see clearly that you maybe hadn't seen before? I realize, again, how much I... um, I'm an, I'm an extroverted introvert. I am a person who's very happy to just be in my house, but when I am out, I'm really happy to see people. And when things go bad for me and when I struggle, I really, um, I don't reach out because I don't want to bother people. I don't want to be a bummer and I don't want them to not like me anymore. Um, so I have learned during this time that I have to reach out because I'm not just walking down the street amongst humans, you know, feeling better just because I'm seeing people, even if they're strangers, I have to make a concerted effort to say, would you like to go for a walk? Can we talk? I'm feeling lonely. Learning to ask for things um, and not be ashamed of it is, has been the work of this last year for me. It's been trying for my daughter and with my daughter. Um, And so advocating for her needs in the midst of a global pandemic when she needs in-person services has been very hard. And doing the work of that, doing the work of 
being a grown ass woman producer saying what I want, you know? Um, and feeling like this is really private, but I'm going to say it a lot, learning to allow someone to really love me. I don't know if I'd ever really allowed someone to truly love me other than my parents. And this year I've gotten so much closer to my husband. I think because I've been so raw and because I have felt so tender, it's almost he it's almost like I had no choice. And in doing so, it's been really healing for me as well as the work of like, I'm a person who's always really self-reflective and really hard on myself. But in terms of like my anti-racism work, to look at myself and in ways that I am racist and ways that I have benefited from a racist society, that has been really hard work too. I feel like there has been so much we have to do. A, stay alive <laughs> during a global pandemic, protect our families, figure out, like manage, like, how am I getting groceries? What's the best way to do that? Deal with whatever interpersonal stuff is happening in our own lives, like I just mentioned, and reflect on our toxic white patriarchal society that this country was founded on and begin the process of dismantling that and not center ourselves in it. It's a lot. It's a lot. As we sort of are coming to this reopening stage, what are you looking forward to? Oh, I am looking forward. Look, I want to start off by saying there's a lot that needs to change in, in Broadway too. I am not like, everything's just going to go back to normal and that's amazing. Like There are a lot of things we have to change within that system as well that I am dedicated to being a part of. And I cannot wait to see our friends and colleagues. I cannot wait for my heart to be at the same time as a thousand other people. Um, I can't wait to do eight shows a week. I can't believe I'm saying that. I can't wait for the, for the routine of it. I can't wait to try to not giggle on that one line. I always laugh on, you know, I just can't wait to like bring my daughter in between shows and eat Thai food with her on the floor of my like crusty asbestos covered dressing room. There is a reason why I always wanted to be on Broadway. And I cannot express how much I miss it and how I can't wait to go back to it and a new and improved version of it. That conversation really made me think about growing up, I feel like I just got to hear like a few life cycles of Laura Benanti. And because of how she shared, I feel like I just grew up a little bit myself. I keep thinking about the ways that we compare ourselves to others, whether it's when we're really young or teenagers or now. I feel like in so many ways, I cannot help it. I do it as a mother. I do it as an actor. I'm not even sure exactly why I do it. But I'm thinking about what Laura said about paying things forward. And what really struck me is that maybe the antidote to feeling less than 
is in fact vulnerability. Because I think vulnerability requires us to connect with people. And when we connect with people and really share our true selves and the ways in which we feel deficient or inadequate, we feel less alone. And then maybe that helps us believe in ourselves so that when we're asked to do things outside of our comfort zones, we can trust that we'll know how to show up. All right, the weekly roundup. For this episode, I'm going to start with this Lit Hub uh, article by Eula Bliss, who is an incredible writer. I'm going to link a few of her other things in the show notes, but she wrote this piece called, um, it's Eula Bliss on how motherhood radicalized Adrian Rich. And she goes back and reads the writer Adrian Rich's book. And she says this, day to day, what I felt then about caring for my baby was exactly what Rich recorded in her journal when her children were young, a sense of insufficiency to the moment and to eternity. And the whole piece is <laughs> very much in line, I think, with what Laura and I were just talking about. Um, she also, Laura also references just at the very end of the episode how she wants to be back in a theater with people's hearts beating at the same time, which reminded me of an article that Ayad Akhtar wrote um, in the New York Times that I haven't thought about for a long time and I just went back and read and it is so good. He talks about these this group of neuroscientists who discover that watching live theater can synchronize people's heartbeats. And it's it just really made me feel feelings about the theater. And then finally, there's a conversation with Simon Sinek and Brene Brown on Simon's um, podcast where they they really disagree with one another on a bunch of things. I think a bunch of people for a long time were like, the two of you have to talk. You're so aligned. And they are both incredibly smart. But it is really interesting to listen to the ways that they disagree. And a big part of what they talk about is vulnerability but that how vulnerability without boundaries is really dangerous. And so obviously that also just made me think about the conversation that I just had. I'm going to link to his name's not Calvin, guys. His name is Cal, Cal Newport. And his book is called Digital Minimalism. And I'll, I'll link to a few other things that Laura has been up to in the show notes. Thank you all so much for being here with me. I cannot wait for the next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. This week's episode was recorded in New York on the lands of the Mohican and Lenape people. Sunday Pancakes is produced by me and Rachel Sussman of Plate Spinner Productions with editing and engineering by Tim Kashani and Ali Rice of Apples and Oranges Arts. The theme music is by Gavin Creel. Special thanks this week to John Conley, Susan Blackwell, and Laura Camion. Sunday Pancakes is distributed by Playbill.